morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Uh, how many of you had a fantastic Christmas? How many of you are still experiencing a little bit of a food coma? A few of you, yes, I know how that can be. Uh, so my name's Albert. Did I say that, that yet? Did I introduce myself yet? Okay, so my name's Albert. I'm the lead pastor of the Tapestry Church Network and really delighted to end this decade with you as we look forward to a new decade. So uh, first up, here's a picture of something called the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. You see, what Christians would often do is that they would build these huge churches on top of holy sites. And so this church was actually built on the location, on the site in which it is believed that Jesus was supposedly born. So this church is actually one of the oldest churches in history. The original basilica that was built in there was built in 327 AD. And as you can tell from this picture, thousands and hundreds of pilgrims, including myself, are rushing to try to get into this building. So this is the inside of the church. Next slide. And as you can tell, it's an Eastern Orthodox church, so quite ornate. And at the very far end of that picture, there is this little kind of uh, uh, door where you walk down the steps down below into this grotto, into this cave, and it is the cave in which they suspect Jesus was born. The reason being is the stables back then, you know, where you kept the animals were often in a cave. So perhaps Jesus could have been born down there, right there. No one knows for sure. So anyways, when you walk down into the cave, you find an altar. And on this altar, underneath at the bottom of the altar, you see kind of two flickering candles. I'm going to zoom in. Next slide. And right there, right where the star is, is the exact location, supposedly, tradition holds, where Jesus was born. Now, no one knows for sure. No one knows about every square inch and so forth. But if supposedly that was indeed where Jesus was born, I was standing right there at that spot. How cool is that? So... Jesus was born. But what happens next in the Christmas story? I mean, we just celebrated Christmas four days ago. I mean, Jesus was born, the angels visited, the shepherds came, the wise men gave gifts. But then what happens next? Well, tucked within the Christmas story is a story of two elders, two senior, two elderly people. And it's unfortunately a story we skip over a lot. I mean, we sing Christmas songs about Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angels. We even sing songs about the wise men. But for some reason, we never sing songs about Simeon and Anna. Who? Well, that's who we're going to talk about today. Simeon and Anna. So, our text this morning follows the story of Jesus. The shepherds have just visited, and we're going to pick things up in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, and it reads like this. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, this passage is actually pretty confusing unless we understand that what Luke is writing about is actually about three different ceremonies. That after the birth of a child, three different things or three different ceremonies actually had to be done. The first ceremony is one of circumcision. That according to Jewish law, every newborn male had to be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. 
Now, the circumcision did not normally take place at the temple. It did not take place at the hospital. They didn't have any back then, but it was taking place at the family's home. And so if Jesus was indeed born on December 25th, that means he was circumcised on January the second, very good. And that would be the date of Jesus' circumcision. So this coming Thursday, if we want to, we could hold, uh, we could celebrate Happy Jesus Circumcision Day. Or we could go to the church that was built on top. No, I'm just kidding. There's no church like that. The second ceremony, though, was the purification of Mary. After the birth of a child, women back there were actually considered ceremonially unclean. If a boy was born, a woman was conceived after that. So, and thus unable to enter into the temple for the 33 days after that. So, 40 days in total, 7 plus 33. 40 seems to be this number that just keeps on coming up. The third and last ceremony was the presentation or the dedication of the firstborn son. That it was done with all firstborn sons, a recognition that children were a gift from God. It isn't that much different than how we baptize kids these days at the tap. Now, most people, especially those that did not live in Jerusalem, would come and perform the second and the third ceremonies together. And this is exactly what is happening here in the story, that Joseph Mary take the 40, uh, take, uh, Joseph Mary take a 40-day-year-old Jesus to Jerusalem. They may have made their journey uh, to Bethlehem. They could have come from Nazareth. We don't really know where they lived at this time. But nevertheless, they come to Jerusalem to do two things. For, Murray, for Mary's, my goodness, I can't talk today. For Mary's purification ritual, as well as an opportunity to dedicate Jesus. You with me so far? Okay. Now, the cost or the fee to do these two rituals required a sacrifice. Often, a lamb was sacrificed, but if the individual could not afford a lamb, then they could instead offer two pigeons or birds or doves. And it is here where we learn something about Joseph and Mary. They didn't have any money. They could not afford a lamb. I mean, Jesus was born to a simple carpenter. They couldn't afford it, so they only could dedicate Jesus by offering two birds. So just imagine the scene. As Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are entering the temple, the temple back then was the major hub of all the activity. Everything happened around the temple. It's not how we imagine a temple or a church to be these days. In fact, it probably would feel like Boxing Day at the mall. Or worse yet, Boxing Day, what I hear was crazy chaos at the Richmond outlets, like just a zoo. Because beggars would be camped out on the steps of the temple crying out and asking for some spare change. Bible students and uh, teachers of the law, rabbis and Pharisees would be scurrying around to get to and from their lessons. Money changers would be there recalibrating their scales. Because as you remember, 33 years later, Jesus comes in the temple, flips over the tables, and chases them out of the temple. There were the, these merchants who were trying to sell their livestock, and you've been to uh, markets where you have to haggle, and these people are saying, no, I've got the purest lambs, or no, I've got the cheapest doves, and so on and so on. And then don't forget the livestock, the bang of the lambs, the cooing and the cries of the doves. Can you hear the noise? Can you smell the animals? Can you feel the chaos? I mean, this is like Boxing Day slash market on steroids. And it is in this chaos that an elderly man named Simeon 
finally, finally finds what he has been waiting for. The story continues in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Now, Simeon is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. We know nothing about his family. We don't know whether he was married, whether he had any children. We don't know what he did as an occupation. The only thing we are told is what matters most to God about his faith and his character. And in verse 25, he is described as being righteous and devout. I mean, those are two really good descriptions if you want descriptions. Righteous and devout. And he is described as being a man of faith and hope, for he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Now, what does that really mean? He's looking for the consolation of Israel. Well, what this means is that Simon was prayerfully expectant of the coming Messiah, that he trusted in the promise that a Savior would be born, would one day come and bring peace and restoration to Israel. You see, for many of the Israelites, they had already lost hope of this coming King and Messiah. Because if you remember in Isaiah, and we've studied Isaiah for the last four months, Isaiah prophesied about this coming king, about this suffering servant, about the shoot and root of Jesse that will come, that beautiful child that will be born and have the names of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I mean, there's this great savior king to come. But they have been waiting and waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. With no sign of him, many people just gave up hope and they didn't believe it anymore but not Simeon. He believed that God was a God who was going to keep his promises. And so the name Simeon actually means to hear and to obey. And on that particular day that we just read, Simeon heard. He heard the Holy Spirit. And I love in this little passage, the Holy Spirit is mentioned three times. How the Holy Spirit rested on Simeon, how the Holy Spirit guided him, and how the Holy Spirit revealed things to him. I mean, what would it be like to be so in tune to the Spirit? that you would hear the Spirit and obey. And so without a second of delay, Simeon jumps out of bed, rushes to the temple, and runs into the crowd amidst the hustle and bustle of the chaos in the temple and begins to search for Jesus. For this was the day. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? Today is the day. Today is the day I graduate Today is the day I get married. Today is the day I finally get on the plane. Today is the day I get that surgery I've been waiting for. Today is the day I start my new job. Today is the day. Today, Simeon, today is the day that you will come face to face with the Savior. Now, don't ask me how he knew. I, don't ask me how he knew Jesus when he saw him. I'm sure Joseph and Mary didn't carry a big sign over Jesus' head that said, the Messiah. No, just prompted by the Holy Spirit, he just knew that when he saw Jesus, he had found who he was looking for. And so what does Simeon do? What does Simeon say as soon as he says, sees Jesus? The story continues in verse uh, 28. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Basically, he's saying, I can now die in peace. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then it continues. Verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the failing and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. If you go back a slide. So as soon as Simeon sees Jesus, right? I mean... He says these profound words. It's like a revolutionary statement. The first thing he says, he says that Jesus will be a light to the Gentiles. Not only the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And I think that would pretty much upset everyone. What? Jesus is coming for the Romans, the Greeks, and the Samaritans? Isn't Jesus supposed to overthrow them? But Jesus is going to save them as well? I mean, we don't realize it, but it's a huge, radical, revolutionary statement here. And as Simeon held this baby in his arms, another person came to join their little group, a woman named Anna. So skipping forward to verse 36, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peniel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up at them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, we are told that Anna was an Israelite, a very old woman, at least 84 years old, or even as old as 111. Because the Greek is a bit ambiguous here. We don't know whether she was actually 84 years at the age, or she has been a widow for the last 84 years. Regardless, we know she is old, and she has lived almost her entire life as a widow. In those days, and even in our days, but especially in those days, being a widow would have been extremely hard. As a widow, Anna had nowhere to turn to, no children and no means to gain money to live on. And so for the past 84 years, she has stayed at the temple. She has nowhere to go. And the temple was the place where she would find shelter and find food, but it was also the place where she came to worship. We are told that she dedicated herself to fasting and praying every day in the temple. That when Anna saw Jesus, she ran over there and gave thanks to God. She just knew it was him. She thanked God for sending the one who will bring restoration to his people. And like Simeon, Anna believed that God would keep his promise, faithfully praying and waiting and anticipating the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us. Simeon and Anna, two people. Simeon had been divinely guided to the temple. Anna was always there, but they came together in this magical and mysterious moment amidst the hustle and bustle of downtown Jerusalem and the chaos of the temple. They huddled together around a father, mother, and their newborn baby. So here's the painting of the scene by the great Dutch painter Rembrandt. It's on the screen, but it's also in your bulletin as well. It's a nice painting, but actually as you look at it, there's something amiss in this painting. There's something in this painting that actually doesn't make a lot of sense or is a little, yeah, not right, a little weird. What is it? Okay, you've got a minute. Talk to your friends. Come up with what might be a little off in this painting, okay? Ready? Go. 
Okay, everybody got it? Yeah, got a good idea? So Simeon and Anna were actually two of Rembrandt's favorite subjects that he depicted them time and time again over his entire lifetime in paintings and in etchings. And actually, Rembrandt was working on a painting of Simeon when he passed away. Apparently, Rembrandt was very touched by these two older individuals. In this early painting, Rembrandt actually painted it back when he was 21 years old. Uh, you have these four characters huddled around Jesus, right? Simeon, Joseph, and Mary are all on their knees, and Simeon is holding Jesus in his left arm. The brightest or the whitest part of the painting is Jesus, right? Jesus almost has a bright white halo around his head, and that's right, because Jesus is the light of the world. He should be the brightest one in the painting. It forms a triangle. The focus is on him, triune, triangle, all that sort of good stuff. Anna is standing throwing back her arms, right? And it's either, it's a combination of both surprise and also thanksgiving, right? Like you can't really tell if she's like, baby, or, you know, like just thank goodness or just something, right? And that's okay. And what a poignant picture it is of Christmas, that this picture portrays what Christmas is ultimately about, huddled around a baby with Jesus at the center of our lives, all good. But there is something amiss in this painting. In most other paintings of this scene and in every other Rembrandt painting, everyone is looking at Jesus as they should. You look at the most important person in the painting. You look at what is the most important person in the story. But no one's really looking at Jesus. Simeon isn't. Simeon's attention is fully focused on who? On Mary. It looks like he's about to grab her hand. And I don't know if you can tell, but Mary's eyes are so wide-eyed, it almost looks like, right, her eyes are going to jump out of the socket. Because it it seems like she has just about heard something that is totally shocking, totally unbelievable, that her eyes are just about to jump out. And her eyes are firmly focused desperately on Jesus. And yet when you're surprised like that, your mouth is usually kind of like, distorted too, but her mouth is actually quite plain, quite almost in a way sad. There is something that is said that is both shocking and yet sad. So what's going on here? What has Simeon just said to Mary? Now, I don't know if you noticed, but I skipped over a few verses of our story like really quickly because I wanted to save what I think was the most important part of the Simeon story to the end. It's right in the middle of our passage that as Simeon held Jesus in his arms, God gives him an insight, a painful insight, that along with the sweetness and joy of this moment comes a bitter bitter pill, that it is a recognition that Jesus will be rejected by many. Simeon turns again, and he says, and reading again, starting in verse 34, the passage that I kind of flipped over, next slide. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too or as well that Simeon tells Mary that Jesus will not receive a hero's welcome, that most Jews expected the Messiah to be this political savior to rescue them from the Romans, but Simeon knows that this will not be the case, that Jesus will be a very controversial savior, 
There will be people on both sides, says Simeon. There will be those who will accept Jesus as God's Son, but there will be others that will reject Him too. Some will reach out and want to hold this baby, but others will want to push Him away. There will be those who will bow down and worship this Jesus as their Lord, but there will be others who will refuse to understand that this is how God breaks into human history. Well, Christmas is a terrific time of the year, a time of joy, laughter, and good cheer. But it's a terribly serious, important time. It's a life-changing time because Christmas divides the human race. It splits people into two camps, slicing them like a sword, those who are for Jesus and those who are against him. And Frederick Buchner calls this the dark side of Christmas. In his great quote, he writes this, For those who believe in God, it means this birth, that God himself is never safe from us. And maybe that is the dark side of Christmas, the terror of the silence, that he comes in such a way that we can always turn him down as we would crack the baby's skull like an eggshell or nail him up when he gets too big for that. As Buchner alludes to in this quote, and what Simeon seemed to know, was that Mary will one day watch and grieve the death of her own son. A sword will not only pierce her son Jesus, which it actually does in his side 33 years later on the cross, but a sword will pierce her own soul too. There is nothing more tragic when a parent loses their child. At the dedication or a baptismal service of a child, there's laughter and joy. There's well wishes for healthy, prosper, prosperous, and wonderful long life. There is never any talk of death, right? But two times in the Christmas story, upon the birth of Jesus, there is talk about his death. Two times. One hint is here. The other actually deals with a story involving the three wise men or the magi. Now, most scholars believe that the Magi may not have shown up the night that Jesus was born, but actually showed up a few months, if not even a few years after his birth. And if you remember, they brought Jesus three gifts, right? The first gift was gold, right? Apt. Jesus is royalty, so this is a gift of his, you know, kind of his royalty. The second was frankincense or incense, you know, what you burn in churches and temples. And so that's apt too, because that gives a note of his divinity. But the third gift was something called myrrh. Myrrh was used as a medicine, a perfume, and spice, but myrrh in particular was used most often in embalming the dead. Now, who brings us a gift for a newborn baby, an oil that is used for the embalming or preparation of a body for burial? It is the worst baby gift you can possibly imagine. It would be like if I came to your baby shower and I decided to give you a casket, right? It's terrible but it's a huge foreshadowing of what is to happen. This baby that's born is going to die. And if this story that we looked at today happens actually after the story of the Magi, then this will be the first ever time that Mary and Joseph will ever hear about what will happen to their son, that he will die a terrible death. Simeon prepares Mary for the grief that she will suffer, hence the picture of her shock and of her sadness. And as Simeon speaks, I can imagine him looking around in the temple, looking at all these people. He's been to the temple a lot. He knows who's around. And I guess he's wondering, as he looks at these people, 
what will their reaction to this king be, to this Jesus? Will they accept Jesus or will they reject him? Will these people, 33 years later, will they be the ones standing on the road going, Hosanna, Hosanna, God saves? Or will they, they be the ones that say, crucify him, crucify him? That's the silence or the dark side of Christmas, that Jesus comes in such a way that either we accept him or we don't. So what about us? Today, you and I are given the same choice. It's Christmas season. Will we fully embrace Jesus for who he is? Or will we be so busy, caught up with even doing the religious things in the temple, good things, that we might actually miss him altogether? So what will you do with this Jesus? Will you receive this greatest gift ever? Or will we walk on by and not even notice? My hope is that we will take our place next to Simeon, Anna, Joseph, and Mary huddled around this child who will change everything. And my hope and my prayer as we enter into a new year and a new decade, I pray like Simeon that the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will come rest on us, that the Holy Spirit will come and guide us, and the Holy Spirit will come and reveal things that bring us closer to this Jesus that was born on Christmas Day. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the story, the faithful story of Simeon and Anna, in tune to the Spirit in worship and in prayer that they saw Jesus, they knew Jesus, and obeyed Jesus. And I pray that that would be our posture, that as we begin a new year, as we begin a new decade, that we would continue to seek after your Son, Jesus, to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to trust Him, to obey Him, and to call Him Lord and Savior. Let us come indeed and let us adore him. In Christ's name I pray.